Nobody went to school for sales. Each of us has our own journey, a journey that ultimately reveals the two opposing forces, the art versus science, the relationships versus the metrics, selling versus sales. What side are you on? This is the Love Selling Hate Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Love Selling Hate Sales Podcast. Today, I am joined by Tony Bettit, who is a director of sales with Twilio. Tony, thank you for joining the show. Of course. Happy to be here. Good. I'm super excited to have you. I think uh, we've got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. You are uh, currently running a sales team at Twilio. I, I remember you from your Terminus days. We worked together a little bit on the partner front. Um, yep. Also see that you started off as an individual contributor. So you have definitely knowledge from both sides of the house, which is super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this whole show is really dedicated to the reason I call it love selling and hate sales is because personally, I love the relationship side of it. I love that piece of the sales. I love putting the puzzle together, finding all of the different um, players within a deal, internally, externally, all that kind of stuff. I hate the metric side of it. I hate the fact that <laughs> managers want to know what activity looks like and blah, 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 blah. However, I fully understand and appreciate that it's a necessary evil. So always as a kicking off point here, as, as a sales leader yourself, high level, how do you balance the two? Yeah. Um, I think it depends a lot on the environment you're in, the company that you work for. Uh, but I agree with you. There is a really important balance there. So for instance, I actually am much like you. And I heard you talk about this in one of your other podcasts, how much you hate the metric science based side. I didn't know that about you working on the type of work you do, because <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you implement a lot of that for your clients. We but do. Uh, I am much the same. I think I, I enjoy and am much better at the art side. I love uh, the presentation. I love coaching reps and how to give wowing presentations. Um and sales fundamentals, uh, the metric side is not my favorite part, but both are important. Uh, so it is startup. So when I was early at Terminus, I started as a director of sales there, but it was me and one other person who sold the sure. first million dollars. And so my early team of say five people, the art side was more important. Yes, uh, It was important that we set the stage with some fundamental we had to track some fundamental things that would allow us to understand business metrics. But the truth is up to about 10 million in recurring revenue, we still didn't have a, uh, I don't know, like an engine. People talk a lot right. in SaaS about having that engine that just kind of goes. The repeatability. Uh, it still wasn't, yeah, it still wasn't predictable. It seems like every quarter things in the market would change on us. So uh, at that point, I think the art side was much more important. Now at Twilio, we're a public company. We're much larger. I'm running uh, a mid-market sales team. Since I joined, mid-market scaled from about 20 to over 60. So wow. um with that type of scale, the metrics piece is very important. We need to understand how to scale our business and how to give in our, our investors and shareholders an idea of where we're headed. Um, I think if you only focus, the, and, and we can, of course, talk a lot more about this. I think if you focus yeah. on only one or the other, uh, it, it's unwise, but it all depends on where you're at. Yeah, I love, I love that concept of the importance on one or the other based on the size of the business. And granted, as you scale up, you have to find the balance even more of if you have hundreds of reps, how do you reinforce the quality when at that kind of scale and volume of rep, it's probably easier to just track activity, right? 
Yep. What what are they doing versus how are they doing it? Um, so let's take a second and dig into the presentation side because you, you mentioned the word I love teaching reps how to present and, and the wow factor. Yeah. Now I tend to see, especially with, yeah, storytelling. Let's, let's dive into that because I tend to see young reps have a problem jumping into a customer's business, right? It's about the product. It's about this. It's about that. But they forget that piece of like, listen, we need to under, fundamentally understand their business. What are yeah. some of the tips that you use to coach your reps to wow in that presentation to make it about them? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts there. Um So overall, I really, really believe in the power of storytelling. I think even if you're a science-minded person, you can appreciate that. But um, so a few thoughts. One, I think it is the responsibility of the business or sales leadership to come up with that fundamental story of who we are and why we do what we do that drives any sales process. But I do think to tell a really effective story in a particular sales cycle, it does require that you've done your homework on the customer. So there's sort Mm -hmm. of that big picture story that doesn't really matter who you're talking to. That's always our story. Um, But to tell a really great story, you do need to have done a a great discovery and really understand the prospect's business. Uh, I do think that's something the average sales rep struggles with simply because it's much easier to look off a list of questions and just sort of ask those questions. Um, It's trickier to ask business centric questions, but that's, what's going to help you to tell the best story. So for instance, at Twilio in particular, this is really important because we don't sell one software product or one out of the box solution. There's a ton of stuff and it's all custom solutions based APIs. Mm -hmm. So it's more important for my rep to understand what is the workflow you're trying to accomplish with a customer? You want to launch uh, alert to notifications use case. Right. So your Delta, you want to start sending text messages to people who have a flight coming to let them know their flight is on time or delayed. Um, it's more important for our reps to really understand what exactly does that workflow need to look like? What is that deeper customer journey beyond just that one interaction uh, because that context is so important. And then why is this project important to your business? And if I can understand that specific story, the customer is trying Mm -hmm. to tell, I can then tell a more compelling story about how Twilio can help that customer. Got it. Do you have an an arc or a framework that you have used in your career to, to help coach people around building out a story? That's a good question. I haven't thought about it in exactly that way. Um, No, I think the closest thing I have to a framework on that topic, something that I did when I was consulting with clients Mm -hmm. is having them do this exercise where they map out what are the key, uh, what are the features of my product or offering or service? Mm -hmm. What are the benefits of those? What are the outcomes that those benefits will drive for a customer? So reduction in costs, increase in revenue, whatever is the true business outcomes. And then what are the types of questions I could ask to uncover uh, those pieces of information so I know what benefits and outcomes to talk about. So I I don't know that I thought about it in terms of it being a framework for storytelling, but it really is in that sense. Um, If you've mapped that out about your business and you know directionally where to go, then as you start to ask the customer questions and uncover their story, you can figure out where your story aligns and probably tell a more compelling one. Awesome. 
So, so what do you see if you're, you know, hiring, I'm assuming you're hiring reps at least frequently or, or, or on a somewhat regular cadence. Yeah. How can you identify those individuals that you feel are going to get the art side of it? Like you just have that gut, like, what, what do you see? What are you looking for? Um, someone who's <laughs> look, I think most of us are not fundamentally different in a sales environment than we are in our personal life. Uh, some people sort of flip a switch, but for the most part, your ability to tell a story and be inquisitive in the real world directly equates to how you're going to be in a sales cycle. So I, I think there's a lot you can tell from someone in the interview process based on what questions they're asking you as an interviewer and asking the other people they're interviewing with, how much they've done their homework and research and how much they're telling their story. So something that I did when I was interviewing, let's say at Twilio, I did a lot of research on the company. I tried to mm -hmm. understand their angle and what they offer. Uh, I had a really good grasp on my story as a candidate, what I was looking for, where I wanted to go in my career and why I thought that aligned with this business. And so I did a lot of discovery and storytelling right. about how I was the right fit. So I, I think that translates pretty well. Um, if someone's not able to do that well in the interview, they're probably not going to do that well as a rep. <laughs> no, I totally agree. So what do you think is the separator for the top performers and the middle performers, because it can't be that much, right? In terms of storytelling or just in general, what differentiates? Let's go with in general. I'm just curious, you know, what, what are those attributes that, that make a top performer in your mind? I, I'm someone who believes that it does vary a little bit based on the sale. So mm -hmm. certainly there are certain personality types that virtually any sale you put them in, they're going to be successful. But I do think there are certain people who could be a tremendous performer in a more transactional sale that wouldn't be in a more complex sale. So mm -hmm. I don't think it always spans time and space. Uh, if, if I was being really general, curiosity is really key. I think the genuine curiosity just is going to lead to better discovery and conversations with prospects and someone who is naturally uh, more empathetic will be a better storyteller. Mm -hmm. So I think those are two important themes, but I will say uh, some of the folks that I've worked with in a past life selling MarTech, mm -hmm. there are certain things about their compelling personality that I think made them really great at selling yeah. MarTech where at a Twilio where we're selling to developers and it's very technical, uh, someone who's a really good problem solver and is very comfortable right. talking about technical concepts. Um, and really as someone who loves understanding business, the more someone gets excited by understanding a customer's business and how it works, the better they're going to be as a rep at Twilio. And you don't have to have that everywhere. So I, I don't think it's always the same, but curiosity, empathy are two really important themes. That's super interesting because, you know, it almost sounds like product market fit. We yeah. talk about that, right? And it's like, as a rep, you know, they say, if you do something you're passionate about, you never work a day in your life. Well, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but if you're passionate, right. And, and it's something that you are passionate about as a seller, if you're selling to marketers, like I have for a long time. And, and I know yeah. you did for, for at least a period of time. A long time. If, if you fit within that group and you know how to talk to those people, it's, it seems it's just like, a, it's a right fit. Right. Where if that personality may actually be a turnoff to a developer, right. Yes. So you have to take a more analytical approach, more engineering focused approach and that may not be a good product market fit for you as a seller. So I never really thought about it that way, but when you bring it up, that's super interesting. I think that's something that um, sellers should really think about as they look at the arc of their career. 
Yeah, something that I thought, and this really fits in your your theme of uh, art versus sales, something that I found really interesting in my career, when I first started at UPS and sales, mm-hmm. I thought all sales was a certain way and all salespeople were a certain way and yeah. mostly males who are older because that's who I worked with at UPS. <laughs> and when I went to Pardot, a startup where there's a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s, right. they had totally different selling styles that were all successful. That was where like this thing, this light bulb went off. So there was this one guy who was super technical. He would go very, we were selling marketing automation software, yep. very deep in the weeds of the use case and the technology. And he'd explain all the details. He was successful. We had another guy who was sort of a surfer dude. And he would even say, hey man, hey dude, I'm sales calls, which yeah. I thought was strange. It worked for him. That's because awesome. both were very authentic and genuine and they play to their strengths and they were themselves. And so I do think there's an element in sales where being yourself, being human and playing to your strengths is really important. And some of us lend to being better at one or the other side. That doesn't mean we'll connect the same way with every buyer. So there's also sort of a a buyer seller fit at play sometimes. Yeah. But I do think every rep has a signature and too many people try to copy other people's that are successful. And the more that you're just unique to yourself, I think that resonates with buyers. That's awesome. Really think that's a powerful message. You know, be yourself, be, you know, who you are, and that'll probably be, that should be good enough, right? Yeah. So as a sales leader, then if you, if you flip to the metric side of it and what you have to measure in terms of inputs and outputs, I know I was talking to Scott Ingram recently and he was saying that, you know, he, he, he just interviews top performers and he's saying there's a, there's two sides of that spectrum. There are top performers who live in the data they're all about the data and yeah. they're going to be in their CRM doing all that. So there's no issue getting them to track activity, track this, track that. On the other side, there's top performers who think it's the worst thing in the world and they negotiate to the death to do the minimum amount that will make people happy. Yeah. So how do you manage a top performer who doesn't want to deal with CRM? Well, like the tricky thing about management is you have to manage each person differently. Um, it, I do think it goes back to this theme of it depends by business. There are certain businesses like at a startup, if someone really hates putting stuff in the CRM, it's much easier to be lenient on that person Mm -hmm. because there's probably not as much oversight at a company like a Twilio, my boss and my boss's boss could ping a rep directly and say, what's going on in this? You don't have your notes updated. Right. So I do think there's an element of that, but a lot of it is figure out that person's strength and how they operate, make sure they understand what they need to do at a minimum to stay off the bad list. Um, But otherwise you kind of adapt to them and understand the way they operate their business. Um, You know, I've had sellers who are really good at the storytelling side of sales, who have a very compelling personality. They sell well, even if they're not as knowledgeable about all the details of the product, because they just connect with people in such a compelling way. And they're not as good at at knowing how they're going to get to their number, but they're still selling. So I'm, I'm happy with that. And you get to know, okay, they're a bit optimistic here. So if they're giving me this number, I think they're actually going to close this. And and you sort of figured out Uh, on the flip side, you've got the folks that are really good at the numbers. Uh, I had one, one rep at my last company who had way more experience than anyone else and should have been the best seller on the team based on his resume. Mm -hmm. Um, but wasn't quite as good at connecting with people on a human level. Mm -hmm. 
um, a little more rigid, a little less open to kind of being himself, um, laughing, smiling on calls, kind of a serious personality and, and didn't perform as well as others. Uh, but he could always tell me where he was going to get, what number he was going to get to with a pretty high degree of accuracy. And so you just sort of figure out how to manage each person. And I think it's good to have a diversity of those types of people on a sales team. Yeah, I think that's strong leadership, frankly. I mean, the ability to understand that everybody doesn't operate the same way. We all have just different personalities and the way you might coach me is different than the way you might coach the guy who sits next to me. I think that's that's super powerful stuff. I'm curious then, what are the metrics that matter to you then if you're going in and, and diving in and you're going to report maybe to your boss? Mm-hmm. Uh, key things I want to understand... So there's building pipeline and there's your ability to close deals. Um, the space within that's tricky. There's been times in my career where I had someone who wasn't performing when I would hear them on calls, it seems like they were doing things right. So it's like, what's this disconnect, right? That's where I think it's tricky. If you only look at numbers, you're missing a part of the story. And I can give you an example. So what's most important to me, I want to see that you're building enough pipeline in terms of dollars to be able to hit your number at whatever our multiplier is. You know, we need 2.5x pipe, let's say, to hit our number. I want to see that you can generate that and do it in a consistent way. And I want to see the actual results that you're hitting the number. Those are the two key like metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think within that, um, I, I'm not someone who loves to have a bunch of, you need to do X number of calls a week and this number of whatever. I'm happy to do it if it makes sense uh, or if there's someone underperforming or to have a standard when you come into the business, here's what you probably should do to get here. But if you find a different path, I don't care. As long as you have these two magical numbers, your pipeline and the revenue, I like that. that's really what I care about. If there's a problem, then we need to look into the details and that's where we may start to put some rules in place. Um, but as an example, I had a rep once who uh, had sort of two versions of this, basically two reps who weren't performing at different stages. And if you only look at the numbers, it tells one story. I really think the subjective side is important. That's why I love tools like Gong that allow you to listen right. to calls. When I dug into the calls, the one of them, I realized I thought he sounded really good on the phone because he was having great conversations, but he wasn't doing the specific things needed to push deals forward, really asking the hard questions, putting times in the calendar, uh, really understanding the compelling event, why it's important, what would cause your business to move forward. And therefore he wasn't having success. And I I didn't feel strongly that he would. (laughs) We moved him to a different part of the business. Uh, on another case, there was someone who was struggling, but as I dug in, I realized they were doing all the right fundamental things. And as I dug into certain deal cycles, I realized the pipe was there. It just hadn't come to fruition yet. Mm -hmm. So that was someone that why let this person go when they're going to hit in two months. Right. Uh, so that person we gave more time to. Right. Yeah. So that sounds like you've, you've identified, you know, with those two key metrics, you've identified two key areas of coaching. Yeah. The the ability to build pipeline and the ability to close. And those are really awesome areas. So what does what does coaching look like in either of those? I mean, you, you mentioned in your example, right? You're not asking the hard questions, not being able to identify how this conversation translates into something valuable for that business. I think a lot of sellers you see a little bit of a separation now. You've got the SDR role, but still there's this full sales cycle. You know, I don't know, every, every business is a little bit different, but what are some of those coaching things that you look at on the pipeline development? I think a lot of people would be interesting to understand that. Well, pipe dev is hard. Um, 
And it's also an area. So like in territories, if mm-hmm. you can get your number by primarily working inbound marketing leads, then fine. Mm-hmm. I don't sure. care. I don't prospect. <laughs> um, but if you, you can't meet the pipeline numbers, then you need to prospect and figure right. out what that strategy is. So like in, in my current role, it's very dependent upon the person in their territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't a one size fits all model because our key customer segments could, we have such a diversity of companies we could sell to that right. the strategy can, can range widely. But in terms of how to coach, you first got to understand what they're doing. Uh, who are you targeting and why? And what does the actual messaging look like? It's just mm-hmm. kind of breaking it down to the components. Are you reaching out to the right accounts? Check. Okay. Let's really dive right. in into the messaging. What's missing here or vice versa. Um, and then pro- I, I think of it all as, as a problem to be solved. So problem mm-hmm. solving. So if this messaging isn't resonating, let's try to figure out why and try something different. If that doesn't work, let's try something different. Um, so I would break it down to those two main areas in terms of prospecting. And then um, in an actual sales cycle, of course, there's a lot more factors. Yeah, for sure. Come into play. For sure. I kind of kind of up with this concept in the, in the prospecting cycle that I want to get your opinion on. And that is the idea of, you know, a lot of times we push for the call to action too soon, right? Yeah. The, the meeting, the whatever it may be. So in prospecting, there's this concept of time to educate and a time to dig for more information, right? Yep. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that makes sense or do you think I'm off base? No, I think there's a lot of research that supports that. We were talking to a customer the other day who has a marketing type use case, and they were actually saying, we see that early stage leads that have just learned about our brand, if we try to push them to purchase a B2C sale, but we try to push them to purchase, our conversion rate significantly drops off. If instead we put them through a nurture program and try later when they indicate X or Y that they're interested, the conversion rate is much higher. Um, there's a very real thing to the buyer journey and letting mm-hmm. that play out. And so, yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And again, it depends on the sale. If you're in a more transactional sale, it makes sense that you would push to a call to action sure. quicker. Uh, if it's an account that could be a million dollar account, you should definitely just build a relationship and see where that goes. Um, I guess your business would just have to set up and it's probably a bit subjective. What are the factors that would let me know when it's time, when the, right. the switch has flipped? Yeah, for sure. So you, you mentioned the buyer journey and how much of that are, is being informed in, in the places that you've worked by your marketing organization? A lot of it. I, um, it's ranged. And I think a lot of it also, de- it depends on what you're selling, who you're selling it to, and what stage of the market you're in. So at mm-hmm. Twilio, we have a product designed by a developer for developers. It's meant to be very self-service. We were self-serve for a long time. Got it. Company went public with very few sales reps. Okay. And so a lot of it for us, uh, a lot of the buyer journey is done by marketing, but really our, even our developer community. <laughs> There's a lot of self-education that happens online and a lot of opting into. I have an active project that I want to work on. Right. And that's what makes outbound for us tricky. Uh, although but at my last company, we were selling a new fangled product that initially no one had heard of. And right. they probably didn't even know they had a problem that we could solve. So for us, it was a lot more about going out and we couldn't wait for marketing to do that legwork first. We had to right. go make it happen. Otherwise, we'd have to wait a few years. So we were sort of trying to get people to skip forward in that buyer journey, which was tricky. Yeah. What, what do you, so it's interesting that you, you took it upon sales to go out and 
really gather the data on the market, right? You're trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, educate to a certain extent because it was a new product. It was, you're trying to define the problem for them and whatnot. How much did marketing lean on you then and your team to leverage that data as they started to, to, to bring the product to market in a more scalable, you know, broader sense? Yeah, we worked really well together, that company. We're also a more tech company. So by nature, mm -hmm. we loved marketers. We wanted to sell to marketers. And so marketing and sales worked pretty well together. Mm -hmm. And look, I wouldn't take credit to say that <laughs> we, we just didn't think about it in terms of us versus them. It was very much a partnership. Good. So that's great. Uh, they did a really good job of doing what they could to educate the market, focus on thought leadership versus sales. So a lot of our marketing in the early days at that company was based on educating the market about the topic at hand versus mm -hmm. our specific pro uh, product. So that meant we had to do a lot of the educating about the actual product. So we really worked together and back to the whole storytelling thing we talked about at the beginning, yeah. we sort of told the story or this narrative about what we were doing in that case, account-based marketing. We're trying to educate the buyer early in the sale of this is what it is. This is how it's defined. Um, and this is why we believe we're well positioned to help you accomplish this. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I am curious about that. We did some research recently on just the, you know, people talk about marketing and sales alignment and it doesn't seem like a topic that uh, that's ever gone away and it probably never will go away, but defining what those outputs actually look like. What, what, what does meaningful alignment look like? And a couple of the, the key metrics that were identified were pipeline, one that we talked about here a minute ago. And then the other was just year over year revenue growth. So really having both sides of the house aligned in partnership through the entire buyer journey, yeah. you know, and making sure that, that the customer is the focus of all of that, right? It's not necessarily just leads being hand over a wall or, you know, anything like that. So I think that's a interesting trajectory and in arc, especially, you know, in the MarTech space, which we both know very well. Um, yeah. And, and I've been out of that space for what, a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. So I probably am not up on the utmost trends, but the thing we kept trying to think about was how do we change our mindset about metrics from marketing versus sales sourced mm -hmm. and just think about how do we work together knowing that almost a hundred percent of the deals we close had some sort of marketing influence. Sure. So we just really try to take that out of the equation and say, did we hit the number? Yes. We both won. Did we not hit the number? Okay. Then we both lost. There's no sense of marketing's winning and sales didn't hit their number or vice versa. That's super powerful. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And then that that metric driven approach to the whole team is is what I think people are going to start moving to more and more. Sometimes you just have to get the egos out That's of the tricky. way. Tricky. Yeah, you know, you get you get some of that. So curious in the current environment, then selling to, into into a developer community, what role does marketing play in your current environment? It's still such an important one. Um, and I haven't spent as much time with them. I'm still pretty new to the company and yeah. have been really deep in the weeds of my team, but they've certainly played a really important role. Again, for a long time, we didn't have a sales team at all. So yeah. um, it just marketing takes a bit of a different form. Uh, it's, it's really, I guess, a lot of product marketing, really mm -hmm. focusing on um, making sure it's very easy for the market to know, understand, and access our product. We've got, you know, free trials of everything. Yep. Um, so, so making it easy for people to self-educate, um, by breaking down every single thing from again, how the product works, how to get started to regulations and things they need to be aware of. Um, 
and making it easy for people to opt in. So if they, I think a big role our marketing team has played is um, someone can set, somebody can spend a million dollars a month on Twilio and never talk to a salesperson if they want to. Wow. And apparently that's happened before. That's crazy. Um, but also our marketing team does a good job of making sure the benefits of working with our team are apparent, how much we try to partner with companies and really help them problem solve through their projects. Of course, can provide discounts too. Um, yes, I think they've done a really great job. So did you have to shift then your, your, the types of sellers that you were looking for when you made the transition because yeah, you, know, totally. you sold into marketers before and now you're selling into developers. How was that transition for you? It's been so fun. Uh, I was excited to have a change. And because I've worked most recently with companies that sort of sold one solution, it's been really fun working in an environment that's a lot more complex. Mm -hmm. Um, The problems to solve with customers are really fun. And working with B2C companies and brands that we know Mm -hmm. has been really exciting. Um, It's definitely a a bit of a different approach, but of course the core of it's the same. At Mm -hmm. the end of the day, it's um, what challenge are you trying to solve? You know, what's, what's the pain associated with it? And is that pain enough to cause you to want to make a change? And if so, why is my offering or solution the best one to meet your needs? And the thing that's most exciting about being here is our offering is so compelling. It definitely doesn't sell itself, but there's yeah. a lot of selling it does just based on how it, it meets needs very awesome. well. Well, one more topic I want to get your thoughts on, and that is the idea of the transition. You've been through the transition from a rep to a manager, yeah. right? And that to me seems like in a lot of organizations, a gap. There's this, It is. you take your top seller, you know what? You've graduated. It's time. You need to go be an FLM or how, depending on, again, your, the size of the organization, maybe you go to an FLM or maybe you go straight to a VP or, or, or whatever, right? But yeah. there's a huge gap there, right? Your best seller, it's not, Jordan wasn't a great coach, right? And yeah. there's what's the training? What's the education? How do you fill that gap? Well, real quick, first on that note, I was just reading a book. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it a book on leadership and it makes the point really well that I think I've been trying to articulate for a while. Cause I I've had people reach out on LinkedIn for advice. How do I go from SDR to VP of sales in one year? And it's like, yeah. my advice is don't do don't. that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And th- what this book basically articulated was, um, the, and it, this is a book that's based off sort of military leadership. So it's a bit of mm-hmm. different, but it translates well. Um, once you get promoted into a, a position of leadership, all the experience you have up into that point is what you have to draw on to be good at that next job. Right. And if you haven't had a broad enough, good enough experience ahead of that, you're not going to be able to offer your people what you need to be a good leader. And so I think it's really, really important that one, you're in a role long enough to master it. Mm-hmm. I know everyone says before you can get promoted, you need to do your job well, but it's not just about hitting numbers. You can hit a number and be a mediocre at the fundamentals of sales because sure. whatever factors, right. um, you need to really be a student of the game for sales leadership in particular. If you want to be a leader, you're now the one who's coaching other people. You're now the one where they're stuck in a sales cycle or your CRO is saying, Hey, we have to win this account. What's the strategy to get there. You're now the right. one that has to help drive that. And if you don't have the experience that's going to enable you to do that, you're not going to, you're going to fail. Um, so, so that's step one is, is making sure that you're mastering the art of sales while you're in it. And then two, to your point, this, the skills to be a manager are quite different than to sell. Um, so how do you get that? 
less doing the job before you're in it, start to coach peers, uh, start to find ways to take on more of a leadership role before how can businesses enable people? Um, I'm a big fan now uh, of the team lead role, uh, giving people exposure. Uh, I wasn't so sure of it before, but I think we do it really well here at Twilio. Um, find ways to get them exposure to what leadership meetings are like. Have them run a coaching session with a rap, and then you coach them on the coaching session. Okay. Uh, give them a lot of exposure so they're much better prepared. Yeah, that's interesting. I, the team lead thing, I hadn't really had much exposure to that myself, so that's an interesting concept. You know, we talked about this a little bit in show prep, and I think it's certainly relevant here to that idea of the SDR reaching out to you and saying, hey, how do I get to a VP of sales in a year? There's got to be an element of knowing yourself, right? And, you know, for me, I, I did almost that exact thing, right, that we talked about. I was I was a, a successful rep for a long time. My boss is like, hey, it's time for you to, to run the sales team. Okay. So I did, and I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't really like it. So I said, Hey, can I go back to just being a, being why do you a say you weren't good at it? What do you think was missing? Well, you know, we're a small company, so we don't have a lot of layers and there's two components, right? There's coaching a small intimate team that I'm pretty close to, Yeah. you know, one that presents a, a unique set of challenges. And then the other is managing up to a CEO who I've known most of my life. Yep. Um, and I wasn't very good at that and the expectations on both sides. Right. And I think a lot of what I didn't realize was my assumption that a lot of sellers, what they expect is they're going to go in and, and get in and work deals with reps. Right. Cause that's what you do. That's what you're good at. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there's this expectation of creating process, reinforcing process, reinforcing rules. None of those things I like very much. Not, not big on rules. I'm not big on process. So for me to enforce, manage, and create those things was really not a great fit. Um, so that's sorry, interesting. No, I, I think that is something that is hard to prepare people for. I don't think I know the right answer, but mm-hmm. you hit on a really good point that a lot of people don't realize that when you move into a leadership role, you are always in the middle of two opposing forces. Mm-hmm. You've got this team that of course is very self-interested as sales mm-hmm. reps is how we are. And then yep. you've got leadership who's really looking for the best of the company. And that can be a really tricky balance. I have all kinds of horror stories. I can tell you yeah. uh, offline and, and some sure. of my experiences with that, but you know, I think and, and how you deal with that with authenticity is a really important piece and very tricky. Uh, I thought about it this way. Um, let's say you have to go to your CEO and report on a really bad quarter. Mm -hmm. You don't want to say anything in that room with them that if your sales team heard later, they would be like, she betrayed us. She doesn't care for us. And vice versa. Let's say your CEO tells you to, to change the comp plan. It's not to your team's benefit. You don't want to go into that meeting and say something that if your CEO heard, he'd be like, she's a traitor. We don't want her here. So, so there's this tricky balance of how do you balance those two sides? How do you always do it in a way where your team knows you have their best interest at heart, Mm -hmm. but you have to be a team player. Something I struggled with early on was 
I was so loyal to my team and some of those executive conversations, there was Tony, you're fighting so hard for your team. And because you're in sales and you have a loud personality, you're often the loudest voice in the room. That's not going to help you get what you want though. Long-term in the executive situation, you have to come at it with a company's point of view. Mm -hmm. And so how do you have both? How do you make sure that your boss knows you have the best interest of the business at heart, but your people know you have their best interest at heart. Um, That's tricky. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and I think I, I struggled personally with that quite a bit where, you know, especially on items where you're aligning on something like a comp plan, you, you think of it from your own selfish perspective as the person sitting in the seat, not that long ago, like, come yeah. on, there's no way. And then it's like, listen, here's the company's balance sheet. Here's how this works. Here's, you know what I mean? You start getting into those conversations and you still, you're, you're fighting those opposing forces of, of how That's where you... problem solving comes back in. So mm-hmm. it's, Okay. You can't do X. Is there another way around it? Is there another variable? Okay. So you're not willing to increase the base percentage that we pay people per deal. Can -hmm. we do more with accelerators? So if someone overperforms, they can still get to that. So that's how I think of it is you go into it with your people and your best interest, because usually that's very tied in terms Mm -hmm. of comp, especially you go into it and you fight as hard as you can. When you get a no, you got to understand what's the business reason? Why are you telling Mm -hmm. me no? How can I problem solve? And you fight and you fight and you fight till you've literally done all you can. And then you can go back to your team and say, guys, I did everything I could. I'm not a hundred percent happy with where we ended up, but that's how a good negotiation goes. But I can tell you guys, I did the absolute best I could. I feel like this plan is very fair and here's why. And then you can explain to them the details. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that's what gives you peace at night. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very great approach. It's a, it's a, it's a sound approach for sure. But I do think as, as sellers look at their career arc, you know, if you're, if you're coming in early and, and you think that this is where you're going to stay, try to look at introspectively at yourself a little bit, nothing's changed. There's no, you know, nothing's the same always. But yeah, what's the right fit for you? Do, do you like being in it? Do you like having a number? Do you like the grind to a certain extent? Can you build sustainable pipeline over time and just do that? Or is management just a way to get out of that? And that's not necessarily the right thing. No, you, you know what I mean? Anything. So I think it's just that introspection and look at yourself and what, and what you're capable of doing. One other thing when you were talking before that I was thinking about that a lot of people don't realize, a lot of folks move into that management role and they're waiting for someone to tell them what to do. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. In a sales role, we don't wait for someone most of the time to tell us what to do. As right. salespeople, we feel like an entrepreneur of our own business and we're figuring things out on our own. And often we do something and ask for permission uh, or ask mm-hmm. for forgiveness later rather than permission. For and then sure. we move into leadership roles and we're waiting for someone to say, what do I do? How do I do it? And I think the best leaders are the ones who don't think that way. They're going to their boss and saying, here's what I want to do. Here's why I want to do it. Do I have your blessing? Yeah. That's also what I've seen people do in terms of making a mistake. There's so eager to get into the management and then they're just following the rules and they end up being a very mediocre manager and not being effective. Uh, you still need to be using your brain and problem solving and pushing the envelope. It's just, you're doing it in different ways than you were before. That to me ties hundred percent back to what you were talking about in terms of having the requisite experience. Yeah. Because without that experience, you likely don't have the vision for what your style, your role, your purpose for that is going to be. And yeah, you don't still have it to draw on. Right. And then you get caught at that point. Like some wait, I'm waiting for someone to tell me what to do. Okay. I'm just going to follow the rules and enforce the rules. Eh, that's, that's probably not effective management at that point. Yeah. The more you've experienced, the more you can really, you can really offer to your team. Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been awesome. So let's, 
tell everybody where they can find you, what you're up to about a plug for Twilio. Would love all that. (laughs) Sure. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, Tony Bennett, Tony with two N's. You can find me on LinkedIn by searching that Tony Bennett at Twilio. Uh, I am also just at Tony Bennett on Twitter, which I haven't been good about. Are you a great Twitter follow? (laughs) No, I need to be. That is one of my goals to get back into that. Life has been crazy being a mom. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, How old's your baby? She is a year and a half, just over. Congrats. It it has been great. I love being a working mom. It's been awesome. Uh, I found it way more empowering than I thought. I just envisioned like all TV portrays working moms as these stressed out, useless, tired people. Uh, I feel great. It is hard. Don't get me wrong, but life is good. I also have a great partner. Anyway. I love it. Um, I, I think you can find anything you need to know about Twilio by going to the Twilio website, but uh, great solution of products. Check it out. Awesome. All right. We will. Tony, thank you so much for joining the show and we will get this released as soon as we possibly can. Awesome. Thanks.